and welcome to this episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology. Produced by David Border-Giles, Timothy Neal, Cameo Daly, Maithali Maher, and Matt Barlow, and made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. So this episode is one that David recorded at the Joint Canadian Anthropology Society and American Anthro Association's conference in Vancouver last year. In it, he's joined by Dr. Teresa Mayers and Dr. Jason DeLeon to discuss their work, the state of the discipline, and what anthropology has to tell us in the 21st century. Teresa is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Vermont. She's affiliated with the Transdisciplinary Research Initiative in Food Studies there. Her ethnographic work investigates migration, food security, and movements for food sovereignty and sustainability. Her book, Life on the Other Border, Farm Workers and Food Justice in Vermont, moves with Latina migrant farm laborers, and it explores the intersections of migration, both documented and undocumented, and the rural farm economy of Vermont. Jason is an ethnographer, archaeologist, and professor of anthropology and Hikano-Hikana studies at the University of California in Los Angeles. He's the author of Land of Open Graves, Living and Dying on the Migrant Trail, and he's a recipient of the prestigious MacArthur Genius Grant. He's also the director of the Undocumented Migration Project, a long-term study that uses ethnographic, archaeological, forensic, and visual research methods to investigate clandestine border crossing at the U.S.-Mexico border. This May, the Undocumented Migration Project will launch Hostile Terrain 94, which is a series of public installations around the world that record the deaths of undocumented migrants along the border. I really enjoyed this interview. I think you get a sense just from their bios of a kind of ethical kinship between Jason's and Teresa's interests and borders and in the force, the very tangible, real, even deathly force of this construct we have of borders. As well as that, mentorship, teaching, the relationship scaffolding what we do, the stuff of acknowledgement sections. It's so great to hear Teresa and Jason really talk about these and the ways they've gone about making sure that they actually cultivate these relationships in their professional work and even formalize them into their projects, as Jason says. So yeah, check it out. It's a good one. We're here for listeners who have never been to the American Anthropological Association meetings. We're here at a massive convention centre. We are three of the five to 6,000 anthropologists who descend on a new city every year. And I don't, I don't know what, what verb you'd use for what we do to the city when we, when we arrive. <laughs> Terrorise. Yeah. 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 yeah, that's a good word. <laughs> um, what do you think of the conference so far? Like, how are you, how are you experiencing it? So far, so good. Um, haven't gone to any sessions yet, but picked up my child from daycare there. It's been great. <laughs> I went to I went to one session my own, and that might be it from for for the rest of the meeting. <laughs> um, it's like the older I get, the less the less I go to, unfortunately. Mm. Um, it's just it's like it, it ends up mostly being meetings and other kinds of things. Yeah. 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 I've been uh, talking with some sort of graduate students and junior scholars about what they get out of the conference. Uh, and they're all, they're the ones who go to all the panels. Yeah. Uh, and I've been sort of trying to encourage them to reach out and make coffee dates with people and do that instead. Yeah. Uh, well, look, we always start off with an icebreaker, which is uh, partly for the people who are trying to imagine their own way into anthropology and see where they fit. Uh, and so I always ask some version of how did you get into anthropology? Like, was there a moment when you first felt like an anthropologist or a moment when you first felt like anthropology was calling you in? Yeah, so I'm probably one of the few people that had an anthropology class in their high school, um, and I took it, and I absolutely loved it. Um, it was mostly focused on physical anthropology, and that was actually the sort of path I was following for a long time. Um, and then when I went to college, um, in order to keep my scholarship, when I transferred schools, I had to declare an anthropology major because it was within the right college, and it seemed to make a lot of sense. Um, I think the first moment I did a field school on the Pine Ridge Reservation um, when I was about 20 or 21 years old, and I think that was the moment that um, being part of this really cool 
collaborative, bottom-up, participatory project um, was really exciting at that age and still is exciting. So I think that was probably it. Right on. So field school was what, uh, or field work was what won you over? Yeah, it was an ethnographic field school, which isn't super common, um, with uh, my undergraduate advisor, um, Kathy Pickering, or Kathy Sherman. Um, and um, she had been working there as a public defender for many years before she went and um, got her PhD and just had a really fantastic ethnographic field school funded by NSF and yeah it was it was a fantastic summer right uh, for people who don't already know much about Pine Ridge what, uh, can you say a bit about that yeah so it's um, in South Dakota and has you know one of the lowest life expectancy rates in the Western Hemisphere one of the lowest um, annual incomes in the United States usually is the poorest county in the United States and what we we're looking at is um, kind of the the ways that people get by in a really cash-poor economy um, and all of the wealth that people have through social relationships and traditional ecological knowledge. And um, we were doing oral histories about people's um, relationships with the land and informal economies, and it was very, very cool. Right. Right on. Um, yeah, and when, uh, when or how did you first know you were an anthropologist? Um, you know, I'm very much a generation of Indiana Jones, so I think... Um, as a kid, I was really fascinated by archaeology. Um, I took a trip to Teotihuacan in Mexico City, which is this giant archaeological site, um, when I was probably about eight, seven or eight. And I remember being really fascinated by pyramids and, you know, old old things, not really knowing what it was, but knowing that I wanted to kind of have some kind of a relationship to it. Um, and so I think I always wanted to, I was always interested in archaeology, but it, it didn't really kind of hit me as a, as a field of study until I was um, probably in 11th grade, um, I took an AP art history course uh, with a high school teacher named Rick Vandruff, who saw that I was kind of a fuck up and a lot, and like wasn't really putting. I mean, I he's I think he saw that there was potential, but I wasn't finding things that I was really excited about. And he really spun a big portion of the class to be about ancient art and about archaeology. And he was kind of the first person that said, you know, you can go to college and study this stuff, and it, and, and this can become a, a career. Um, so I mean, I think without him. Uh, I don't know what, what I would be doing. Uh, is there a way in which those those early moments continue to shape the kind of anthropologist you are? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm still I'm still in conversation with my undergraduate advisor, um, and I think this idea of reciprocity and doing work that is um, needed and meaningful to the people in whatever field site you're in has really stuck with me. Um, and this idea of doing more than sort of the academic output that, you know, doing a lot of work to share results and to make them useful in a community setting is something that definitely shaped um, how I approach my own field work. You know, I think for me, the role of mentors has been so crucial in every stage of my career. Um, and, you know, whether it's my 11th grade uh, high school teacher or, you know, professors I had as an, as an undergrad. Um, and so I've been really firmly committed to training students, taking them into the field, um, trying to expose them to the things that got me really excited about the discipline. Um, and so that's, that's like part, I mean, that's built into my research um, project is, you know, this kind of formalized mentorship um, and trying to facilitate student, student research in a bunch of different ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's something I think both of you have in common too. It's one of the, the things that put me in mind of putting both of you around a, a set of microphones together. So I might come back to that question. Can I start off by asking big kind of naive, wide-eyed question? What's a border? Both of your work deals with borders. Uh, both of your projects deal with borders. What is a border? And what's a border in 2019? <laughs> <laughs> I'll let Jason start on this uh, one. <laughs> you know, I think I tend to think about borders as these cultural constructs that have very real ramifications for people's lives um, you know so very much like like the concept of race right we've made it up we've constructed this thing culturally but it doesn't mean that it doesn't do damaging kinds of things to people's to people's lives and so that's kind of the way I imagine you know geopolitical boundaries too is this thing that people think is real but in fact right it's been it, we've, we've made it up um, and it and we've accepted that it's real and then it has these really you know deleterious effects on on, on people's lives mm-hmm. yeah I think to build off that, I think this idea of, I've, I've been sort of thinking a lot about borders less as like a physical space as instead of a process. And I think Jason's work has really sort of, you know, coaxed me through that thinking. Um, this idea that it is a process of sort of telling you who, who counts and who doesn't, who belongs and who doesn't, um, you know, highly arbitrary, but used in, in really damaging ways. Um, you know, I, and I think the way that 
I've thought about borders has been long shaped by sort of Chicano feminism and the idea that borders are sort of all around us and within us. Um, but when they're enacted by powerful entities, then that's when I think they become very scary. Right. Uh, which was going to be my next question is sort of what's happening to them now. Um, I mean, in some ways it's obvious, but in some ways I'm, I'm, I don't know how to answer that question. Oh, I feel like we're having conversations now that I never thought we would be having about borders. I mean, walls, I mean, all these kinds of ridiculous things. We're, it feels like we've taken a, a giant leap back. And, um, you know, I think I was, you know, like many of us was in the, the haze of Obama. And, you know, even though Obama had deported lots of people and had done lots of problematic things along the U.S.-Mexico border, it still felt like we were pushing towards some kind of comprehensive immigration reform. And sure as hell, we're very far from that now. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think along with the fact that we're having conversations that I did not necessarily anticipate, I think the fact that we're having those conversations are really important. And I think that, you know, when my mom can, you know, call me up and talk to me about, you know, what she's learning about in terms of, you know, especially the southern U.S. border, um, I think that there's also sort of a visibility of um, the atrocities that are happening there that, you know, while they are certainly atrocious, I think that Fortunately, we're seeing that conversation happening, um, and that's that's important, but um, also highly discouraging. You know, it's funny. I was having a conversation with someone the other day about mm-hmm. about Trump, mm-hmm. and and I'm always trying to put some kind of a positive spin on. You know, it's like, well, you know, he's empowered a lot of people to work for social change. Um, he's forced people to kind of deal with this issue that's kind of been that's that's been hiding in plain sight. But I seen the other day too. It's like, you know, people know now where's like what Central America is. I mean, a lot more people, they know what, you know, where Honduras is and Guatemala and El Salvador. We've forced the issue. And I think in some ways, you know, um, um, despite how bad things are right now at the U.S.-Mexico border and, and, and elsewhere um, in regards to immigration, there's also this new level of, of, of awareness, um, which I think, so borders have become important in this, in not just in a kind of negative way, but people's, but raising their consciousness about, you know, these things that are happening and, and how we can sort of fight them. Mm-hmm. Uh, this might be a good moment to ask both of you uh, to sort of to talk a little bit about how your specific field sites, how you frame those, and uh, and for people who don't already know your work, uh, you know, to sort of locate yourself within them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so my borderland that I'm working in and live in is a very different one than than the one where Jason's working. Um, so my ethnographic work for the past. Um, eight years um, has been in Vermont, which is kind of understood as the sort of green utopia, Bernie Sanders land, you know, which there's some truth to that as, as well as some serious mistruths. Um, so I specifically work with mostly undocumented farm workers that are in the state of Vermont um, who have sometimes, you know, crossed multiple borders in order to be there. Um, and their lives are sort of always shaped by being in this border zone because um, a good number of the dairy farms are within 100 miles or at least you know, or a number of them within 25 miles. Um, so, you know, I've been thinking that there's, you know, this really important conversation that we're having about the U.S.-Mexico border, and, you know, we're seeing a really good set of anthropological treatments of that. Um, but the northern border is kind of not talked about, um, even though there's ways that that border has changed and has become a much scarier place for people to live in and a much sort of um, different place for Vermonters to live in, since, especially since 9-11. Um, and so this idea of the other border is something that I work with through my book as, you know, trying to, trying to raise some questions about how does bordering happen in the northern borderlands? How are people experiencing that who, you know, are often still grappling with the trauma of crossing into the United States? Um, and so that's the field site. But it's a, it's a very cold, white place <laughs> right. um, uh, compared to a lot of the places where people are moving from. Right. Um, and... So ICE is Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Yep. Uh, have they been ramping up in Vermont as well, yeah. just like the rest of the country? Yep, yep. So we've had checkpoints um, throughout Vermont um, mm-hmm. and a number of places where people, you know, where farm workers are known to travel. Um, there's been a recent slate of, um, in my mind, very targeted detentions of farm worker activists. Um, there's a current lawsuit about... Uh, the DMV sort of colluding and providing information to federal immigration enforcement. Um, so there's a number of really um, challenging things about that place. Um, but yeah. yeah. Has that raised an awareness mm-hmm. amongst like Vermonters in terms of like, 
you know, understanding what can happen within 100 miles of the border. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the ACLU has a pretty active sort of information campaign. Um, there's a number of different organizations that are working really hard on sort of know your rights campaigns. And, um, you know, there's also really great networks. So, if, you know, if a checkpoint goes up, there's a, a really rapid sort of response network alerting people to where that is and to stay, you know, away from that. So, yeah, there's definitely a lot of ways that that's changed. Hmm. Are, are there any sanctuary cities in Vermont? Um, I think that Burlington went through the process of declaration, but whether it's actually used in that way is is highly suspect. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think there's one church in Vermont that is known as the Sanctuary Church. That, yeah. And um, how does that compare to your field site? Um, so I work on the both the U.S.-Mexico border and the Guatemala-Mexico border um, between 2000 around 2009 and 20. 15, I was working in southern Arizona. Since then, I've been largely working in either like Chiapas, so on the Guatemala border with Mexico, or um, other part, other parts of the country. Um, and I've been looking, my first project was looking at the experiences of largely Mexican migrants crossing the Arizona desert. And then my current project is on um, Honduran smugglers. And so the, the daily lives of smugglers who are now moving migrants across, across Mexico. Um, and really the way in which human smuggling response to, you know, changes in border enforcement, changes in, you know, in, um, U.S. political economy, that kind of stuff. Um, but trying to understand the daily lives of smugglers. How does one become one? Um, you know, how do they kind of envision the work that they're doing as, as, a, as a form of service? But then also what's the relationship between smugglers and, um, and organized crime? So I look, a lot of the guys I work with are um, in transnational gangs like MS-13 who, who've largely taken over the, the smuggling across Mexico now. All right. Uh, that sort of links to another question I was interested in, which is almost counterintuitively, borders are also relationships. Uh, and so in some ways, the border that's supposed to, uh, that's supposed to interrupt or that's supposed to be a disjuncture becomes a bridge or a, you know, becomes a worlding of sorts. Um, and both of you have done, in various ways, multi-sided work, looking at, you know, linkages at the border... I don't know if you'd say enables or um, conditions anyway. Uh, so could you say a bit about the, the multi-sidedness of your work? Um, and you sort of started talking about this already, about the, the transnational linkages that the border makes or makes possible. I mean, for me, the multi-sided stuff ended up happening because, and you know, I, I was following people. So I had to kind of, as they were moving, I couldn't, I couldn't be stationary. Um, and so I ended up being, you know, starting in northern Mexico and then into Arizona and then into New York and then into Ecuador. Um, and part of the, re I mean, so I think studying migration has forced me to kind of think about things in, in a multi-sided kind of way. Um, but also, you know, I think the type of anthropology that I want to do is really sort of story-driven. And so rather than staying in one place and, like, 50 people come come through and I get them for a short period of time, you know, I made the decision then to really follow certain stories, which then forces me to, to become to become mobile. Um, but it wasn't by it wasn't by design at all. I mean, it just was kind of a, it's just how it happened. Yeah. But I, I mean, I appreciate that methodological choice, you oh. know, the, um, to center the story. And nobody really talked about that for me. Like, I kind of had to look, you know. When I had to look into it later on to write about it, be like, do people actually do this kind of stuff? You know, and there hadn't been that much written about it. And most of what I was looking at in terms of the Mexican migration into the U.S. was really site specific. Um, and and I was just like, well, the stories that I want to tell require me to, you know, to to, to be to be mobile. Um, so I, I don't really have a field site. I mean, I guess I do, but but I feel like, um, you know, I'm 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 not committed to. I mean, I have multiple field sites, I guess. So I've had that experience writing about uh, protest movements that are global and that are full of people who are kind of, you know, train hopping or moving from city mm -hmm. to city. And I've bumped up against, have you found that too, bumping up against the resistance of people who need you to have a field site to be legible as an anthropologist? I mean, I haven't really gotten much pushback. Um, I think partly because people didn't know what the hell to do with me anyway. And so um, for a long time, nobody was paying attention. And so it didn't really, I was, you know, when I was at the University of Michigan, I was 100% in sociocultural anthropology. 
even though I was doing quite a bit of forensic and archaeological work. And I think that I wasn't that legible to the sociocultural folks, and I sure as hell wasn't legible to the archaeologists. So nobody was like saying, hey, you need to be kind of doing this stuff, mm. which was great. I mean, so when they leave you alone, you know, they don't, no one's kind of keeping tabs. Um, but now, I mean, it does feel like, like at least within the migration literature, people are, this is kind of the new, the new normal. But, you know, there's very much still people, though, right, like, like this is my village kind of thing. Um, but I think there's, there's lots of other ways of doing anthropology. Yeah, my multi-sided stuff has really been sort of various sites around Vermont. And there's a, a strong sort of distinction between northern Vermont and even more southern regions. And a lot of that has to do with sort of the intensity of Border Patrol and where they're really active versus where they're not as active, but still sort of inspire quite a bit of anxiety and fear. Um, sort of the next stage and where I'm thinking is doing some field work in Chiapas, which is where a number of people come from and understanding how people's home communities are changing as a result of the, you know, the money that they're earning in Vermont um, and sort of following people back home after they've, after they have kind of decided that they're done working in the state and maybe even the United States entirely. Um, so that's kind of maybe the next project once I figure out how to do field work with a young, a young person um, in my life. Um, but I think there's, you know, sort of following people in these kind of micro migration routes around the state, you know, and knowing a little bit about the patterns that people are sort of pushed out of a certain farm and pulled into a certain farm and sort of the the very distinct landscapes that are even within this tiny, weird little state has been really interesting um, because there's, of course, the big migration that people make, you know, up into the state, but then all around the state and sort of sometimes between New York and New Hampshire also um, really meaningful experiences. And um, that's been, you know, an important sort of just following people where they're going kind of a similar thing. Well, you know, we, we took our kid, our first mm -hmm. kid to Chiapas, we yeah. did, a, did a field season there. Um, I would definitely do things differently now. Yeah. And, um, Love to ask you yeah, for tips. Yeah, we, we lived in like probably the most unfriendly, uh, most unchild friendly kind of like exposed rebar, electrical <laughs> things coming out of the wall, tarantulas. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things about having kids in the field that made, mm -hmm. I think that made me really legible for the mm -hmm. first time, where yeah. people were like, oh, you're actually an adult. Yeah. <laughs> like you've, got, yeah. You've, you've reproduced. Yeah. Um, so I, I ended up, you know, really, it was a good experience for us to, mm -hmm. to, um, mm. to, to bring, to bring mm -hmm. kids into the field. Yeah. Um, mm. One of my colleagues uh, takes her uh, now one-year-old to mm. Papua New Guinea all the time mm. yeah. uh, and is amazed at the new conversations it makes possible because yeah. she's legible yeah. in, it, you know, the same way. She's legible in a particular yeah. kinship uh, yeah. space. Yeah, yeah. I've definitely seen that just even, you know, talking to the women in Vermont you know, mm. that are e either working on farms or working, you know, with their husbands on farms. And, yeah, I was, I was unknown. I was like, you're a 35-year-old non-mother? When the hell are you? <laughs> now it's like they could place me. Yeah. Mm. Uh, at some point, I was going to ask you a little bit about, like, I mean, about research design and about how, mm -hmm. what sort of innovations or, or uh, adjustments you've had to make to follow, um, to follow border stories. You know, what is there something about studying the border and studying people crossing it uh, that requires a different methodological approach? For me, I think it's it's a it's a really interesting balance. I think. You know, given that I'm working with people often in the place where they end up, not necessarily through the process of moving, except for in these, again, sort of smaller movements, that what I've experienced a lot of sort of, I guess it is methodological, is sort of like how do you learn to handle the experience of people going back home once you become really close with them? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and you form friendships and you, you know, feel, you know, in many ways that they're a part of your sort of broader family. And then, you know, how do you maintain those connections once people leave? You know, and there's a lot of fun Facebook sort of ways to do so. But I think that, that was, that's been really challenging in a lot of ways is, you know, knowing people and having them, you know, pretty present in my life, you know, both academic and some of my more applied work. And then letting go has been, has been sort of methodologically challenging. But also, how do you keep you know, in contact and keep learning about their lives after they returned home when they might be in a, you know, kind of an unplugged village. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that's been uh, something that I have to sort of think through. Right. So are you sending postcards and letters? Yeah, lots of lots of uh, WhatsApp chats and <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think for me, one of the big things in the beginning was I wanted to study this social process that I couldn't directly observe, mm -hmm. right? I couldn't participate in it, so I had to find ways to to examine it without doing that. So I think that was a real um, kind of early challenge, but a good one. It forced me to think about different kind of methods, um, which I thought was really help helpful for me. And with this kind of stuff, I mean, with border stuff, 
it's a saturated market. I mean, it's just like there's so many people doing border stuff, which really makes it difficult then to do something innovative because there's, I mean, it's, it's just, it's probably already been done. And um, so what I keep trying to do is find projects that force me to think about new methods um, in relationship to the, you know, these questions of migration. And so like my current project, basically, you know, I went from being this person who had been using archaeology to part, part of my work had been using archaeology to see what, how we, what we could say about, about, about immigration. Um, and the next project, I've walked away from forensics, I've walked away from archaeology, and I've, I've walked away from um, a lot of the things that I'd been doing on the first project and decided to pick up a camera to think about photoethnography as this new challenging kind of method um, to go back into the, and then also to change, instead of the, the sort of sympathetic migrants, what happens if I focus attention on people who are less sympathetic, who are, but who are equally important in this whole process. Um, and I do that to myself on purpose to like, basically keep me from, I hope, getting stale. Um, it's incredibly terrifying because um, you have to learn a whole new set of literature. You've got to, you know, it, it, but, I, but I hope that it forces me to, um, by taking on new methods, it forces me to, to, to think more about this stuff um, and, and to learn. You know, I, I really mm. want to keep, keep learning about new methods and, and, exp- and kind of pushing the boundaries if I can. Mm. Um, and you have an especially interesting story about having uh, decided at some point to, uh, to sort of arc from archaeology to... Uh, to ethnography, was uh, well. Can, can you tell the audience a little bit about that thought process? So my dissertation was on. I wrote a 600-page tome on ancient stone tools um, from you know southern Mexico. I've never published anything in my dissertation. Um, you know, so I had this for 10 years. I was doing archaeology, and then I dropped. I, I dropped everything and went to University of Washington and basically said, "I'm going to do this new project on immigration." It's totally un, undeveloped. I mean, I literally had no idea what it was going to look like. Um, and I thought at one point that archaeology, I was done with it completely. And then it turns out I started developing this project and realized that I can kind of take this, this previous training and put it into a, into a new kind of context. Um, but none of this was by design. I mean, it's all, I mean, it's super terrifying. Like, you know, you go on the job market. And it's, I mean, this only really worked out because I did it the year before the market crashed. And so in 2007, there were still jobs and, there, and people were, were going to hire me even though I had done this thing and now I was no longer doing, I had no expertise in this new thing I was proposing to do. Um, I don't think necessarily that would have happened in 2008 or 2009. Mm, that's a really good point. And something I think a lot of the, a lot of our listeners are graduate students. Uh, and I think, you know, what's on their mind partly is how do I think about who I'm going to be in two years or five years? And how do I sort of th- launch myself in that direction? Well, did you walk by the... Um, the like booths of doom, you know, where they where they do the oh interviews. I walked, I was like triggered, like I was like, yeah, oh god, <laughs> like uh, like uh, you know. And for your listeners, basically the AAA's, they have these tables where they're surrounded by black cloth, like they lock you in this little room, and that's where they do these you know on-site interviews. But it's a really terrifying. Yeah. Um, What's even worse is you can hear all of the yeah. other stressful <laughs> conversations around you. And yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. I, I only did one here, yeah. it, and it was total failure. Yeah. I mean, God, just like, <laughs> yep. just I a nightmare. Real, just horrible. Um, Do you have tips for anyone who finds themselves in one of those interview booths uh, in a year or three? Oh, man. <laughs> While we're on the subject? Pack your interview suit in, yeah. in your carry-on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have, have a drink before you go in yeah. there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yep. yeah. It's a, you know, um, it's just a hard thing. I mean, you're, you're trying to sell yourself, right? And it's, um, we don't really, I mean, I got no, I don't know about you guys. I, know, I got no training as a graduate student about like how to present myself as a researcher but by the end you know very little I think yeah and so it's just kind of like make it up as you go and I, I you know I really try now with my own graduate students to say okay if this is your project what are your other interests can you bridge those things and can you present yourself at the end in, in five seven ten years you know what's your kind of goal of the type of researcher that you want you want the world to kind of see you as and then so how do we then plan for that mm-hmm. uh, but I never got I mean obviously I didn't get any of that because I went and did some <laughs> things that you probably should never do. Um, um, both of your books, uh, both of your first books are actually second projects. Um, yeah, that was, mm-hmm. I, I thought that was an interesting mm-hmm. question. Yeah. Uh, how did you think about sort of wheeling from pro- one project to another and then, mm-hmm. I mean, in that sort of early career space where you're mm-hmm. thinking about, I'm building on this thing I've done, mm-hmm. I'm building towards an arc, and then now that you're looking back on that, mm-hmm. uh, how did that pan out? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, so I, you know, as I'm, a, I'm the kind of ethnographer that wants to do work where I'm living, and then I found myself living in Vermont, um, which is a very different place than anywhere I've ever lived. Um, and I think the first thing is that I was so tired of talking about my dissertation. I was so over that data um, that I could sort of chop it up and turn it into articles. But the idea of turning it into a book was just overwhelming to me, even though it was, it was written as a full-length monograph. Um, so I chopped it up and I turned it into articles and um, I had this sort of initial thought of, oh, maybe I'll do this comparative thing, looking at food access in Seattle with you know, day laborers and domestic workers and, and the same kind of question with farm workers in Vermont. Um, and then I had a really great conversation with Rachel Black, who's a food anthropologist, and she's like, just leave it, like, just leave it behind. Focus on the new stuff. There's enough there. And, and that was really good advice. Um, but I think it was, for me, it was a really helpful thing just to get to know the new place that I was living and to have something other than, you know, teaching and, you know, things that were happening there. Um, you know, driving around very rural places in the middle of January in Vermont is a, a soul-searching experience in a number of ways without snow tires. Um, and so I think for me, it was, it was just wanting something current and new and a way to have students in the field and, you know, having um, a way to connect with this new place that I was living um, and still seeing the relevance of that first project, but being done with it, mm. wanting to move away from it. Mm. Did it feel liberating to kind of have this new project now that there's no longer this committee that you have to make happy? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah definitely. Yeah, I think so. Mm. I think it's interesting that you talked about choosing a project in conjunction with uh, teaching and mentorship, and you've both talked about that a little bit. So, yeah, could you say a bit more about where teaching and, like, teaching broadly and then also specifically, you know, mentor, mentoring graduate students, where that fits into your, into your research design? I mean, I came out of a discipline of archaeology where... We're getting, we're getting bombed here. Okay, the seaplane. Um, <laughs> you know, I came out of a discipline where... You worked in large teams. You had you, there was always lots of students around, and so when I started doing ethnographic work, I was just assumed that that would be fine too. Um, and you know, I started asking questions that required a lot of people to help me. So whether that was the forensic stuff or the archaeological stuff, I could never do it by myself. So I had to incorporate students. Um, and I always thought about you know my own, my first experiences in the field um, were life changing. You know, the first time someone took me to the field and gave me responsibilities, that's when I really knew that this is what I wanted to become. And so I've just tried to keep that as a core part of my of my of my research. I mean, and it's one of these things where, you know, I I dabble in, you know, exhibition work and photography and um, um, you know public facing sorts of stuff and, and you know and teaching is an important part of all those things. But I've tried to not have it I I mean I I can't do like two different things. Right. People say like you know, this is my public work, and this is my, like, I don't know what's opposite of public anthropology, I'm, you know. But I'm like, I just don't have the bandwidth to do those to do those two different things. So I try to do everything at once, and incorporating the teaching into the research has been really crucial. It's really fulfilling for me, um, but also selfishly, it, like, helps me get the work done. Um, and um, But it's really inspiring. I mean, I've, I think I've taken to either Arizona or Mexico probably over 120 students to do field work. Um, and I see in each one of them myself, you know, that person who was given an opportunity and, and hopefully it was a, a good life-changing one. So that's, I really, um, you know, want to give back. And some of them have already gone on and finished their PhDs. Yeah, some, you know, some of them are here now, doing, you know, in grad school or they've gone off to law school, but, they're, you know, but they're, they're, they're taking anthropology and, and putting in these new kinds of, you know, new, new spaces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, most of the student involvement has come through this applied food access project that... I help coordinate. So UVM has UVM Extension, we're a land-grant school. Um, and I quickly realized that if I was going to have an opportunity to talk to people, you know, in the field and um, sort of work with this particular community, there was very soon going to be sort of the onslaught of student interest. Um, because there's, I mean, UVM is one of those campuses, I think, where these students want to do something. A lot of them, you know, travel abroad or study abroad, and they're like, I want to I want to keep speaking Spanish, this often this refrain. Um, but there's often more sort of deep reasons is that they become sort of politicized or they, they get a new sense of reality after living in other places, and they're like, I want to continue this. And so... Um, we have a project where we have interns placed, you know, working directly with farm workers. We're really careful about the students that we bring into the field um, because of, you know, all of the different layers of 
questions of confidentiality and things that they need to think about. Um, but for me, it's been a really good way just to sort of harness all of that student interest. And, you know, for the students that are like, I really want to work with farm workers. Oh, I don't speak Spanish, though. That, you know, it's like, okay, well, let's gear you somewhere else. So, you know, the students that, you know, have an interest in food and have some Spanish background and, you know, have some cultural sensitivity and some cultural familiarity, it's been a really good way of just, like, channeling them, really, into a way that, um, they can do something and they feel really good about that and that's needed, right? That, that's, I think, the big thing is that this project is really stems from conversations that my colleague in Extension has had with the barriers that people face to getting food and, you know, the things that we know about the, the dangers often of going to places like a grocery store. Um, and so I think it's been a good way just to get students um, who want to do something good um, in a place where they can do that, but also expose them to, you know, the, the difficulty of doing these kinds of applied projects um, and really how they can become really rewarding too. Have you seen a shift like post 2016, like a different kind of student or more kind of interest? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I feel like, um, I feel like a lot of students following the election have become sort of even more hell-bent on changing things. <laughs> um, and whether it's, you know, with the organization that I help co-direct or whether it's with an organization called Migrant Justice, um, that, yeah, they, they are really looking for something to do and, and in a local way. And a lot of them are actually doing some work on the U.S.-Mexico border as well. Um, but, yeah, I, I, have you seen that? I didn't see it a lot at the University of Michigan. Yeah. I think it's a certain kind of, I mean, um, and I, I had some students who, you know, who I would work with who were doing honors thesis and they were the kind of super engagement. Most, I mean, I ended up teaching this sort of 500-person intro class that was a, that was a, um, fulfilled a requirement. So there's a lot of students who just did not want to be there. And so I felt like I really saw the kind of opposite of that for the last few years I was teaching there were people who, who didn't like what I had to say, um, you know, very angry at the left. Um, and, you know, that really kind of soured my teaching for a while. Was, I felt like I was just a sort of target. Um, so, yeah, but my new institution, it does seem like, you know, it's a different, it's a different demographic. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I first interviewed at the University of Vermont, I, ha I asked one of my colleagues, I'm like, how do you tiptoe or how do you sort of walk around politics on this campus? And he's like, well, you never have to be, you never have to worry about being accused of being too far left. So it's, it's right. a, it's an institution, you know, at the same time, it's like, you know, there are, there are more conservative students in there. And how do you sort of talk about the stuff without completely alienating them so that they will maybe actually hear what you have to say. It's really hard. Yeah. I mean, that's a conversation I'd love to have actually about in this context uh, where the messaging is so polarized, what do anthropologists bring to that conversation that might, that might be productive and progressive without being part of those, like without sort of being automatically folded into one echo chamber or another and maybe that's a rhetorical question I've been trying mm -hmm. to figure that out myself yeah. I mean I think the sort of historical approach right I think one of the things that we can talk about is like yeah it's all the way over here right now this you know on the spectrum but it's going to keep swinging this way and then it's going to keep swinging this way so I think sort of looking at it as a sort of like long process I think is important and also you know I typically just come back to you know the good old sort of like here's the empirical facts like, let me tell you about how undocumented immigrants are supporting the tax base that you're drawing upon. So I think it's it's sometimes really hard to argue numbers if you are a person who is like, you know, sort of maybe challenging more humanities-based scholarship and things like that. So the numbers help in some ways. Yeah, I just try to bring stuff in a different way if I can. You know, I think a lot of the students who are turned off by these issues right now part of it is because we're just bombarded with information right and I mean I can't keep up with the news and I'm like supposed to be an expert in this stuff it's supposed to be my you know my job and I'm like I gotta turn this off mm -hmm. and so if I'm burnt out on this stuff um, you know I'm, I think about all these students who they just it, it's too much and so I try to give the give the give them a different way of thinking about it so rather than like I'm not interested in telling a migration story I'm interested in telling a, a, a people story mm -hmm. and if you can see yourself in, in people and see them as people first and then migrants kind of you know after the fact maybe that's a that's a different way to, to bring this information um, but I do think it's a it's a problem I mean trying to figure out ways to to present your work to a, a general public that's um, that's legible is um, crucial although it feels like right now we're in a political moment within the discipline where 
you know, if it used to be, I would say, five, ten years ago, someone said you were a public anthropologist or an engaged anthropologist. That's like a bad word. I mean, that's not it's not a good thing for a lot of folks. And I do think that we're in a in a moment now where we're realizing that the stakes are so high that we need to be in the public. And um, so I, I do think there's there's in, in, an increased value to that. Um, I don't necessarily think it'll get you tenure still, but I think people are starting to recognize that it is important and that we should all be kind of doing it um, because I think we have the most to say about these issues and we just rarely get the platform to do it because we're not good at translating our work um, or we devalue mm-hmm. you know, this, the more public-facing stuff. All right, so I've taught with your book a couple of times and students are uh, consistently, uh, consistently thrilled about the language in it. There's a lot of bad words. <laughs> they like that. They definitely like that. Mind uh, yeah, yeah. But, but I think that, you know, the, the, I mean, you have a, it reads like you've got a, a very sort of self-consciously styled uh, sort of accessibility. Um, it's, you know, look, it's, you're speaking to people. Uh, you, I mean, you, you, my students feel like you're speaking to them. You know, my writing has changed because I, I've, I've, of course, got no training on how to write. I don't think we any, I mean, right? It's like, you can write a journal article, intro, background, methods, you know, that was the extent of it. No one ever said to me, be kind to your reader, you know, <laughs> ever. Yep. Um, and when I, you know, mm. I had the opposite of like, so I didn't have a book to, a dissertation to turn into a book. So I had to write everything from scratch. And f- going up for tenure, I had basically written all the articles I needed to write and then saved the book for the very end. Mm. And when I started working on the book, I was like, oh God, like, I hate writing. And, you know, and it's just a dull, like, soul-sucking kind of process for me. And so I, I was like, well, if I have to do this thing, then I should try to have fun with it. I should try to do it in a different kind of way. And I think, like, graduate school killed my love of reading, you know? Like, I didn't read any, like, fiction or any of that stuff when I was a grad student. I was too busy reading things I thought I was supposed to be reading. So when it came down to, like, writing a book, I went back to all that stuff. I stopped reading ethnographies and I started reading things that I used to be really excited about. And then I was like, why can't I try to write like this instead of you know um, this other way and um, and now I'm like totally in love with, with mm-hmm. writing and wish I could do more of it mm-hmm. yeah, but yeah. we don't train I mean anthropologists to write well I don't. and we sometimes discourage it oh my god yeah. I, you know <laughs> yeah. I, I've had lots of feedback about my writing and people use the word cute yeah <laughs> and I'm like well yeah, yeah. No, cute's actually, right. yeah. Cute's yeah. 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 I mean I, I'm imagining the student <laughs> in the back row who might enjoy the cuteness yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, how do I write to the student in the back row and you know my colleague yeah. in the, the office next to me at the same time? I'm also not actually speaking about a specific colleague. No. Colleagues, <laughs> colleagues in the office next He's to me. He's pointing at actually. a picture of someone in the department. <laughs> you know, we, um, but I mean, even like, I, I think we we shouldn't be rewarding people who write impenetrably, right? We should be like, what the, what the fuck is this? Like, yeah. you know, this you should lose points for that. If people can't read your work, um, but you know, we very much hide behind. Um, I think language and the, you know the academy is very good at um, speaking to itself and rewarding that. I was also going to ask about public scholarship in the broader sense. You know, so I know you've uh, worked with local farm workers, uh, grassroots organi- organising there, um, and we're actually bringing your Hostile Terrain '94 exhibit to uh, Deakin University next year. Um, so, yeah, how, how do you think about the relationship between maybe not maybe not public scholarship but engaged work community engaged work and the research that you're designing do, are they are they inseparable do they sort of does one flow naturally into the other or do you have to do the work to keep them in dialogue yeah i mean for me they're inseparable but also how knowing when and how they need to separate um and part of that is that so i'm on a board of a local farm worker advocacy group and you know i'm privy to a lot of information, you know, through that and, you know, stuff that is not meant to be made sort of publicly accessible to academics. And so knowing sort of which role to play and, you know, which set of information it should be public and shouldn't has been a big, big piece of it. Um, the other thing that's really pushed me is this um, collaborative cartooning project that I got involved with that was totally like did not expect I was doing field work um, and doing food access surveys in the um, waiting room of a clinic. And this badass nurse was like, hey, you collect stories, right? That's what you do professionally. I was like, yes, yep, yeah, that's what I do. She's like, well, I have this idea. Let's do this participatory collaborative cartooning project to address mental health concerns. And I'm like, 
okay, <laughs> sounds great. Sign me <laughs> up. So I hadn't read a, a comic book or a graphic novel probably since I was like five. And, mm -hmm. you know, within a number of weeks, we were working with these uh, cartoonists to sort of visualize and make graphic these, these farm worker stories. And it became just such a cool way of thinking about public work in a, in a new way. And there was absolutely no sort of academic purpose to it for me. I mean, there's maybe going to be a co-authored introduction to a, an edited series of these comics come out, but there was no stakes. And it was just such a fun way to experiment with different forms of speaking with people and different forms of um, making stories legible to people. Um, and that I think it, sometimes it's really nice to do the public stuff absolutely free of academic constraints. Um, although how do you find the time to do that is a, is a thing mm -hmm. as well. Um, was that before or after you got tenure? Uh, crossing the tenure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think tenure is a big part of it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, before I went up for tenure, I was doing a lot of exhibition work that people thought was cute, but wasn't necessarily going to get me tenure. And so I had to do all the other things that was required and then um, keep this other active stuff kind of going on. It wasn't really until like the university got the press that they started to really, people said, oh, you know, it's on the New York, it's in the New York Times, so, you know, this must be of value now, um, even though, you know, it had been going on for years before that. And um, I kind of got to a point, so post-tenure, now I'm like, I just do whatever the fuck I want, which is, I mean, which has been really kind of liberating because um, I don't want to write another boring journal article. I don't like the format. I think it's too constraining. And so it's not where my head is at the moment. Um, you know, the exhibition work, you know, it's only because of tenure that I'm allowed to take 16 months off from writing and just work on exhibitions mm -hmm. and have that be, this is my scholarship for the next 16 months. Um, but I also hope by, you know, so I'm liberating that I can do it. But I also, I think at the end, I want to make this argument to say, this should be, this is as valuable as journal articles, as other stuff, and we need to see it as, as labor. Um, and, and, you know, trying to set an example for my other, especially my untenured colleagues who are doing stuff that I think is really important, but, but is not necessarily legible to a review committee. So part of this, you know, this current project on you know, this exhibition work is, is, you know, I'm frustrated with this political um, moment. And so this is my big FU to the, to the White House and to other folks. Um, and, but it's also, you know, my attempt to kind of say anthropology can be all kinds of different things. And I hope that, um, you know, now that I'm in a position to set an example, that people can, 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 can see that there's value in this. And rather than, like, sacrificing a junior colleague, you know, I mean, this is a question that's come up in, in tenure discussions. Someone's doing exhibition work or making films, and, it's, and the committee goes, well, it's not a journal article. What's the impact factor of this film kind of thing? And, and, and us being like, you know how damn hard it is to make a movie? Like, this is, like, 15 journal articles. Um, and we, but, you know, you, you don't want to tell these people to just go up for tenure about the stuff because that's, I mean, really could backfire in, in, in all kinds of ways. So um, I think it's important for people who, you know, post-tenure to pursue these projects and then also to justify it, to, 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 be, to get better at explaining how they are equally, you know, they're as valuable, if not more important than, um, mm -hmm. than some of the scholarly work that we're expected to be doing. And it, and it pays off often. Yeah. You know, um, you know the, the podcast, for example, is we, we now get a little bit of recognition from the university for doing it, but it's not going to get us promoted per se. Yeah. Uh, but you know, now there's a, a world of anthropological podcasts and, you know, initially it was just graduate students who were listening to it and now, uh, you know, I'm talking to people on this side of the, of the water who have tenure who've started listening to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, ask about the impact of uh, suddenly being a genius. Yeah. <laughs> my favourite story about that is the morning after I was, in a, I was giving a talk somewhere and I first thing I did was lock myself out of my hotel room. Like, so, you know, it's like, all right, day one, genius. Um, you, know, um, you know, but that that really has just allowed me to do more of the things that I really want to do. Mm -hmm. um, but it's funny, I mean, people who treat you differently was just so stupid. People I, who were assholes to me before now are suddenly think that what I have to say is important, which is just so annoying. Yep. Um, but, um, you know, if nothing else, it's just really facilitated. You know, it's allowed me to do things that I wouldn't have been able to do. Mm -hmm. um, 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 previously and was it partly uh, was the award partly uh, related to the public aspects of your work I'm sure it was like was it a, yeah. was it a recognition of the uh, more than yeah. scholarly I, I think I mean I think that you know they they're sort of looking for people who are 
doing interesting things within their within their field, but also you know that 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 are imp- impacting a, a, a wider audience. And so mm-hmm. it's funny all the things that I've been told I shouldn't be doing, mm-hmm. I think in the long run have been have really have paid off. Mm. That's something I want our you know the the undergraduates and graduate students listening to this to hear, you know that it, there's not one pathway. Uh, there's not one pathway to becoming an anthropologist. I mean, we have the coolest job in the world. I mean, I mean, it's like because um, you can do whatever you want. I mean, that's that's the beauty of it. And um, I think we need to embrace that more. But it's cool. I mean, the, the graphic novel is starting to really pick up. You're seeing that, you know, and people recognizing that as scholarship. You know, ethnographic film. There's lots of stuff that's happening. The discipline, you know, the multimodal, um, um, multimedia work. Is, is really picking up and catching up to the rest of the world. I think that we have been in this bubble for a long time where it's like journal articles and books. That's what anthropologists do. And it's like, you know, we're mm. really limiting ourselves when we, when we think about it in those, in those terms. Um, I know you, had, you were free until three. Yeah. It's just on three now. Okay. Um, and that does actually sound like a, a decent, a decent uh, point to end on. Mm. We have the best job in the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have any closing thoughts or clo- uh, closing questions for each other? I'm just, I'm really excited we're bringing Hostelatory into UVM as well, or UVM and our public library. And yeah, I'm just really excited for students to sort of make these connections between what's happening and sort of the people that are in our state and the places that they've come from and the sort of paths that they've taken. So hmm. I'm really excited about that. And you'll get Raul Pastrana. I'm hoping. Uh, I yeah. saw him on the way yeah, in. Yeah. Yeah, he's like... <laughs> It's like, where am I going? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So our, we have a film that comes with the exhibition, mm. um, Hostile Terrain. Uh, uh, the film's called Border South, but it's directed by a um, uh, Mexican filmmaker named Raul Pastrana, who <laughs> you guys went to college together? Yeah, we have known each other for like 20 years. Um, we were friends in Colorado, and we were a bunch of young punks, like climbing radio towers yeah. at 3 in the morning. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited. So hopefully you guys will get to climb some radio towers. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Generally, after a lot of beer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to leave that in the podcast. Okay. All right. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. Yeah. 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 This was a nice little reunion. Yeah. Yeah. You've been listening to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology. This podcast is produced by David Border-Giles, Timothy Neal, Cameo Daly, Mythley Maher, and Matt Barlow, and made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. To learn more about this podcast, find us on Twitter, we're at AnthroConvo, and don't forget to rate and review us on your chosen podcasting platform. 